Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, flying solo today so that Octavia can focus on her writing. And I'm thrilled that for a special episode, I will be speaking to the writer Elif Batuman, who's here to talk about her latest novel, Either Or. This story picks up where Elif's first novel, The Idiot, left off. Selin, a Turkish-American woman, is in her second year at Harvard in 1996. She wants to be a writer, and she wants to find a way to live. And so she searches for clues in the books she is reading and the people she meets. It's a hard novel to describe, but let me assure you, it is hilarious, smart, and utterly itself. To tell you a little more about Elif Batuman, her first novel, The Idiot, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She is also the author of The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010 and holds a PhD in comparative literature from Stanford University. Also, as a reminder, we're on Patreon. If you want to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us. In our latest Patreon minisode, we talked about the form of the essay, which ones we like, which ones we don't like as much. You can also find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Stay tuned for my interview with Elif and also some of our reading recommendations. Elif Batuman, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. I'm so excited to be here. So I wanted to talk to you mainly about your novel, Either Or, but of course, this novel is a kind of sequel to your first novel, The Idiot. And I was reading something you wrote about writing Either Or, and you said that one of the motivating reasons was that a lot of people presumed that The Idiot was not a political novel. And Mm -hmm. that was an interesting presumption to you. And it was one of the reasons you wanted to continue the story. So do you mind talking a little bit more about that? So the decision to write either or came from doing the promotion around the idiot and from having conversations with readers and also from the atmosphere of political volatility. And also it was a peak moment of feminism, of feminism becoming mainstream in a way that it hadn't been for most of my adult life. And I became, as I was having more and more conversations about the idiot, and as the sort of Me Too momentum was building in 2017, which is when the idiot came out, I became a lot more aware of how the idiot was actually a novel about depoliticization. It's a very autobiographical novel, and it's really about a time when I started to think of myself as a literature person, as opposed to a politics person, which I was increasingly realizing is not actually a dichotomy that makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's something that a lot of younger people now share. I don't think people who are citizens age now are making that kind of choice. And I just realized that there's, there's really nothing more political than the question of how any group of people, in this case, young women, is steered away from politics. This was also a time when I was one year into my first non-heterosexual relationship 
And I was really rethinking, I was reading a lot of second wave feminism. I read this essay by Adrienne Rich, Compulsory Heterosexuality, which made a huge impression on me. It's it's an essay where she talks about the existence of a force that's operating across history and across cultures to wrench women's energies away from themselves and each other and towards men and towards romance. And in a sense, away from what we consider politics, which is the public sphere and the world of men. And I became really conscious of how a force like that had operated on me, even though I would never have put it in those words at that time. And it made me realize that I needed to go back to that period of time when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And I needed to replay how I had made those decisions at that time that now seemed very suspect to me, basically a decision to not see myself as a political person. How did that come about? What were the forces? You know, because I knew about feminism. It was there. I knew about lesbianism. I knew about leftism and different kinds of political engagement and psychoanalytic theory. I I encountered all of those things, but how did I encounter them in a way that made them seem that they weren't for me? I couldn't quite remember It was also a time when a lot of people in the U.S. and I think all over were revisiting the 90s and revisiting kind of sexual political incidents of the 90s, like the Monica Lewinsky scandal, the Anita Hill's testimony in the Clarence Thomas hearing. This was especially true in 2018 with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. And it was a time when a lot of women were retelling their own early sexual history using a new kind of political language that we didn't have at the time and using words like rape culture and patriarchy, which existed in the past, but were not in the mainstream the way that they are now. And it became really important to me to unpack and kind of remember, but also restaged because in a way those memories weren't available to me anymore because I was trying to remember what it was like to not have a certain vocabulary from a time when I did have a certain vocabulary. So it was a lot of kind of restaging and reconstructing how, I guess, my own ideological formation, even though I wouldn't have called it that at the time. And that was a big impetus for writing either or. And it's interesting you talk about this distinction and becoming a literature person versus becoming a politics person. But I think Celine does, as she reads books, ask a lot of the same questions that the theorists were asking at those times in a more kind of structured way. So there's this question she keeps coming back to about why does everyone think that having kids and being in a heterosexual relationship is just the apotheosis of things? And she doesn't, like the way she maybe decides to explore those things is just to experience them and see what they're like. But I felt that actually there was a lot of feminist theory embedded in this just through a different route, maybe? Do do you feel that way about the book as well? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really a book written with a double consciousness. I tried to write it. So I initially had a plan for this book that the, you know, it's the title comes from Kierkegaard's Either Or, which is a book that's like, there's a part one and a part two, and the two parts completely contradict each other. And my initial plan for this book was that part one was going to be a novel set in the nineties. And then part two was going to be sort of a memoiristic essay set in the present time, which at that point was, you know, 2017 to 2020. And, and the essay was going to be about how novels really led me to harm. And it was going to be sort of like anti-novel and the first part would be a novel. And then that second part, the essay, I don't know, I ended up trying to convey that present day knowledge 
in the form of the novel. Like I tried to write it in a way that the person reading it would be aware that my ideal reader would like you be aware of certain feminist ideas that Céline is not aware of at the time and, and that the reader would be able to bring certain knowledge from the present into it. And part of the issue that I was having when I was trying to write the essay part of the book was it was forcing me to come in as someone who had all of the answers. Like I basically had to do my version of like eco-feminist world explaining, which was maybe not the most delightful thing, you know, either for me to read or for me to write or for other people to read. Like I showed part of it to my editor and she was like, oh, could you just not do that? And the advantage of writing from Céline's point of view is she's just asking all these questions. So she's asking the same questions that I think radical feminist texts and, and critics are asking, but she doesn't know that those texts exist and that they're asking those questions and that they're answering those questions. So she's still in a place where she's like, huh, why does everyone kind of assume that the point of life is to have children and to make a lot of money so you can pay for the children? And, you know, she gets different answers and she's like, but, you know, some people say it so that you outnumber people from other religions, but that seems kind of antisocial and I'm not religious. And other people say you need to have children so there's someone to take care of you when you're older, but wouldn't it be better to like pay someone to take care of you when you're older instead of give birth to someone and force that person to do it? And like, she's questioning all of these kind of unspoken norms. And she's, she's also questioning heterosexuality in a way, although she doesn't really question heterosexuality as much as she questions the economic structures of having children and making money to pay for the children. And that's because she has allied herself with this. She's decided that liberation for her is going to come in the form of novels and novels are about love and love in the novel is heterosexual love. And she hasn't come to the point of being able to question that. That said, the things that attract her to novels and the things that attracted me to novels when I was a teenager, it's extremely political. You know, I just didn't realize that at the time because it wasn't part of the 90s Cold War language. There was this idea that, you know, if literature, great literature was objective and not political and literature that was political was tendentious and it wasn't art. But I mean, the books that I really fell in love with as a teenager, like Anna Karenina, I fell in love with that book because of its political content, because it showed in such a nuanced and human and engaging way, the experience of women under social oppression. And I was attracted to those things. And I thought they weren't political because when I read texts that I thought of as political, like, you know, John Stuart Mill or the New York Times, they weren't talking about things like that. And that actually is that the personal is political is the central point of, you know, radical feminist criticism, which, you know, was happened in the seventies. So it was completely still there in the, in the 90s. And I, I could have found it, but I didn't. And I read books like Shulamith Firestone's Dialectic of Sex only in my late 30s, only as I was writing either or. And that's where I encountered ideas about the depoliticization and the ideological sort of like pulling of women into this domestic, personal, supposedly non-political life. And that was when I first started to frame it that way. So in a way, I was realizing that the politics was there all along, but that I hadn't understood it as such. And then writing the book was sort of a balancing act between showing how Céline doesn't understand these things, but hopefully setting it up so that the reader can draw some of the conclusions that she's not able to draw herself. Yeah. And just thinking about the form of the novel as well, it's so mm-hmm. interesting to me that it started as an essay. You know, you you also have this metastructure in that Céline wants to be a novelist and mm-hmm. um, she's kind of trying to figure out what she's allowed to write and what she isn't allowed to write. And she's always 
what she really wants to do is write about her life and her experiences. But she keeps being told that maybe that isn't valid enough as a pursuit to just write down what's happening to her. And I wonder if there's also a meta argument about that here, that like the novel can just be about things that have happened to us personally. Yeah, I I read it that way. Absolutely. There was a very strong idea when I was in the in the 90s, which is when I was first taking creative writing classes, that great literature, and this is an idea that I think comes from German romanticism, and also it was really fostered during the Cold War in America, that literature and novels are inspired by some, they come from some kind of artistic inspiration, not from your own life. And that if you write about your own life, you're being either a mere stenographer and not an artist, or you're navel gazing and you're being self-indulgent. And I actually increasingly find this pernicious ideology, not that there's anything wrong with inventing things, but I think that that insistence that it's not art, if it's actually about your life, actually served to bolster this elitist model of who got to write and who got to tell stories. So until relatively recently, the the only people, it was a very small percentage of the population who could write novels. And it was, you know, extremely privileged white male from certain countries, from certain classes, from certain religions, who had the task of generating literature for everyone to be consumed by everyone. So there was naturally an idea that they have to be able to, to be protean and to be virtuosic and to inhabit all of the different voices. And, you know, part of that, you know, you have a story like Flaubert writing Madame Bovary, where he decides to write this novel, inhabiting the point of view of this very banal woman from the provinces and who's vulgar and who's sort of misguided about things. And he's able to see into her soul with such empathy that he then says, Emma Bovary, say moi. And it's supposed to be this novel, this moment of like novelistic empathy and I was taught that that was a a very, like a great humane moment in the history of literature when Flaubert was able to make that step of identification. And I think that that, if you really believe that, if you believe that it takes a great genius with some special artistic talent to translate all the different experiences of the world into literature, then, you know, part of what you're buying into is the idea that a banal provincial woman from the, you know, wherever couldn't write the book herself. At the end of Either Or, you know, massive spoiler, Céline reads Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, and she reads Henry James's preface to Portrait of a Lady, where he talks about how he got the idea for the novel from a story that a woman told him at a dinner table. And he's like, of course, I had to extract the germ of that story from what she was saying and discard all of the stuff that wasn't art. And then I had to elaborate this whole artistic structure. And there's just this idea that the artist was someone who had to bring this huge amount of added value to reality in order to turn it into literature, which, you know, I think that it led to a body of literature that is filled with untruths. It's filled with things that are not actually part of real life. And it also was a way to make you know, writers were always quite sensitive, aware people. So I, I mean, my interpretation is that Henry James felt kind of guilty about taking the story from the woman at the dinner table. And he had to have a story for himself about how like, well, it's okay that I took it from her because she wouldn't have known what to do with it anyway. I was able to turn it into art. And I think that the idea that you can't write about your own experience is really intimately linked to that idea that the artist is someone who has this like special talent and who brings some like added translation to life. Whereas for me, what I've always looked to novels to help me process real life and to help me process my own life. And 
the whole idea that novels should be defined by their fictionality or by their, you know, lack of correspondence to referential truth strikes me as very counterintuitive and strange. One of the things that I was thinking about hearing you talk about using your personal experience in a novel is that I've interviewed a lot of women novelists who get very frustrated when if they're writing a novel that hues closely to their own experiences, they get asked a lot by people about how much of the novel is really then. And if there is a distinction between their own experience and the novel, and of course there is, you know, it's a novel, it's fiction, but I wonder first, maybe if, if that frustrates you and if that's something you've had to kind of contend with as you're, as you're speaking about these two novels, I think you've been very open that it's very inspired by your own experience. But, but second of all, I'd love to think about how you think about your relationship to Celine. Like what is she that is separate from you and what is she that is a part of you? Yeah, I do get that question a lot. I would say that the way in which Celine is different from me is that I no longer have access to all of the memories of it's it's what I was saying before about how how impossible it is to remember events and feelings that you now have a certain vocabulary for that you didn't have at the time and that you weren't paying attention to at the time. So I guess you know one way of of interpreting this question is well why didn't you write a memoir if it's so close to your life why is it a novel? And for me it's because you know, I, I was during that time wanted to remember how I thought about the Anita Hill testimony back in 1991. And I could kind of remember, but I couldn't completely remember. So I found my old diary from 1991, but there was really only one sentence about it. And it was like, oh, Clarence Thomas is a shithead. You know, it wasn't anything very like insightful. It wasn't nuanced. You know, I remember being on Anita Hill's side, but to what extent was I on Monica Lewinsky's side? Because even, even the committed feminists missed the boat on that one. Like I knew intellectually that I knew about lesbianism, but I couldn't completely remember why I thought it wasn't for me. So the book was really less about, you know, memorializing my particular experience than about imaginatively restaging the different encounters that I thought would plausibly have led a good faith person like me to certain conclusions. So part of the reason that it's a novel is that it's drawing on material that I don't actually have access to. Of course, Satan is also, especially in either or more so than in The Idiot, she has some thought processes that I could not possibly have had at the time because even though I, I was scrupulous to not use terms like rape culture and to not, you know, or to not to mention compulsory heterosexuality, which is an essay I didn't, I hadn't read and a concept I didn't know about. I didn't, I didn't know about heteronormativity. So I didn't mention any of those things, but I, definitely her inner monologues and the questions that she asks are designed to elicit those questions from a present day reader and I think the questions that Selin is asking, where she's kind of outraged by things, I'm pretty sure that in real life, I accepted more of those things than Selin does. I don't think I questioned as rigorously as she does. And that's because when you're young and you get to a new environment, you're trying to fit in. And you're also, you know, like Harvard had been presented to me as this like apotheosis of like the life of the mind and of like, I don't know, just the, the greatest 
enlightenment available to humanity had been distilled in this place. So I thought of Harvard as this terrifically enlightened place, and I was trying to accommodate myself to it. I wasn't really questioning it so much. So I think that probably I was accepting a lot more things than Celine did. To the extent that do I feel frustrated by being asked about the autobiographical material, it's a hundred percent question that people ask to women that they don't ask to men. It's related to the Madame Bovary situation that like, you know, oh, Flaubert could write a story about Madame Bovary, but a woman could only write about the stuff that happens to her. And in that sense, it, it is quite distasteful. More broadly, I think that there's a real prohibition for everyone against writing autobiographically. And it's it's the holdover of that idea that great art has to invent. And I see that as a form of censorship. Honestly, I see it as, as a kind of social censorship. Like if you spend any amount of time with writers, you will hear people tell amazing stories and you're like, why haven't you written that? And they will tell you, you know, I'm waiting for so-and-so to die. Everyone is protecting someone. Often the person who's being protected is, is parents. And it's a real plight of being a writer. So it's this, you're in this kind of peculiar position where it can feel like to describe your own subjective experience is to betray the love of other people, which I think that's the biggest reason that people don't write about their own experience. And I just wonder, there's this famous quote from, Cheslav Milos, that the minute that a writer is born into a family, the family is doomed. I, I'm sure I'm getting the words wrong, but it's something to that effect. And there's an idea, you know, we don't air our dirty laundry. You have to be discreet. But I would just ask, you know, what is dirty laundry? Why are we ashamed of it? If everyone has it, I just think that shame is kind of this, like, it's this false idea of personal badness that attaches to actually universal things that we don't have to feel ashamed about. We've been talking about politics and, and the ambitions of fiction and all of those things, which are, come through in the novel. But I also really would like to make the point that this novel is hilarious. It's so funny. I think I laughed every other page. It was great. I loved reading it. And I was trying to break down as I was reading. I was like, what makes this so funny? Why is this so hilarious? And I, I think it's partially that... Selene, and I assume also you, I mean, you must be, is just alive to the kind of absurdities of, of everyday life. And she has a great kind of deadpan way of reporting these ridiculous things that are said or conversations or her thoughts, making them seem strange again, which I think is part of what humor can do. It can kind of make mm -hmm. the everyday or the mundane weird again. Mm -hmm. And I wonder as you know, what is your relationship to your own humor as you're writing? Because I assume you wrote this book trying to be funny. And I wonder, like, do you have <laughs> jokes that you put in and then you think they're not so funny? Like, do you laugh at your own humor as you're writing? What your relationship to it? Oh, first of all, thank you for thank you for finding it funny. I yeah, I tried very hard to be funny. It's always it's always a big <laughs> effort. To me, it, it actually humor is very political. Humor is a way of, I don't know, if you're having some stressful encounter, maybe you're on the New York city subway and something is going on. That's like making you retreat into yourself and feel uncomfortable and scared. And then someone will make a joke about it. And like everyone in the subway car will laugh. It makes you realize that you're not this like isolated person. I think that that's actually a political moment. It creates community and it's political because the ability to question the received 
sort of serious norms and to be like, we, I'm going to describe this in a really literal way. And we're going to think about what it actually is that we've been accepting. That is a form of questioning. I mean, it's a, it's kind of like, you know, Michel Foucault 101 is like how much of what we accept as the invariant structures of human nature or the way of the world are actually some totally arbitrary thing that some guy thought of that we all accept and treat as serious. It's like the emperor has no clothes kind of insight. And it can be very funny, you know, like now, now when I, when I go to a party, which is something that, you know, you do, you have social obligations to go to parties. And when you get there, you're like, Oh, where's the alcohol? Like how soon can I get a drink? (laughs) But Sidon doesn't know those things yet. And she's like, okay, wait, why do I have to go to this party? Like, what are all these people? Why are they wearing this clothes? Like, why are they all drinking this? When they drink alcohol, like it makes people sick and sometimes they die, but like, oh, I understand why people have to do it because otherwise being around people is intolerable. And she's like, kind of like realizing all of these things that we sort of take for granted. And if you unpack them, they become funny. So some of the humor just sort of arose kind of naturally like that by myself going back in time which allowed me to question certain things that I now completely take for granted and can't question anymore. This is something that that I got another question about this, like about how do I have the confidence to make kind of abstruse or obscure jokes? Do I, and do I like take them out because I think, do I ever take out jokes because I think people won't get them? And I would have to say that a big part of how I gained the confidence to use humor the way I do comes from time that I spent on Twitter, which I'm not on Twitter now, but from 2012 to like 2016 or so, I I was on it a lot. And it was just fascinating to see, you know, you would make a joke or some kind of observation and to see what the same thing that makes Twitter so kind of pernicious, which is that you're just looking at it to see how many likes and retweets you get also makes it just fascinating to learn how humor works because it's very hard to guess what's going to take off and what isn't. And you learn it both from your own jokes and from seeing what kinds of jokes go viral. And I, I feel like I learned, I got a lot more confidence because I learned that a lot of jokes that I considered weird or abstruse would become popular with huge numbers of people. And that kind of made me realize like, okay, so the ideas that we have about like what's basic and what's weird are not actually, like a lot of these ideas kind of came to us from like cultural gatekeepers before there was the internet, because we needed that. We needed someone to say like, okay, this is what I think is going to play with an audience. And this is what I think is not going to play with an audience. And of course we were wrong about some of those things, you know, and when we get the actual granular data from the internet, it's, it's really interesting to see how those shared ideas were maybe not necessarily correct with either, or I think I felt more confidence to make some of the, to really just write the jokes that were funny to me without without worrying as much as I used to when I was younger about like, oh, but I'm not like most people. And if, you know, I just have a lot more confidence now that if, if something is funny to anyone that people, you know, people aren't that different. I think I grew up with this invested in this idea that I was very unlike other people. And now I'm really into the Enneagram. I think I'm an Enneagram four, which is really based on this idea of thinking that you're different from other people. And I'm just realizing that people aren't that, you know, if something is is really interesting to me, like it's not going to be interesting to everyone, but it's going to be interesting to a lot of people. You know, I didn't come from Mars and that's how I feel about humor now also. Yeah. And I, as I was reading, I'm sure a lot of the jokes did go over my head, but then the ones that 
seemed more specific, but were something that I knew about were mm-hmm. maybe even more funny because they, they felt so specific to me. It was like such a relief, which is often, I think how I feel about the internet sometimes. Like mm-hmm. if there's a joke on Twitter about something that you didn't think that many other people cared about and you see that it's blown up. I think there's a funny joke about Picasso and then there's one about Alanis mm-hmm. Morissette. And I was like, it's so great to be reading a book where somebody's making a book about like the romantic transformation that Alanis Morissette goes through in her <laughs> singles. Like that was hilarious. <laughs> and I think, yeah, you're right. That maybe there's an idea that that is, is too obscure to, to ever to be put down to print or something like that. There's also a mistaken idea. I I feel the same way you do when I come across jokes that I don't understand or, and this is more true, I think with references, even than with jokes, if I come across references, I don't understand. It doesn't really bother me. You know, I think that there's this idea that like, oh, if you put references to things that people don't get, they're going to feel alienated and they're going to hate you. And they're going to think that you're like elitist or that, that you're calling them stupid. But if you're not actually calling people stupid and you're just mentioning the things that you're thinking about, especially now that we have Google, like you can look up whatever you don't. And if you really want to get a joke on Twitter that you don't get, like you'll, you'll figure it out eventually. I don't know. I guess I spent a long time studying Russian literature and Russian is a language that I don't speak perfectly. And the poetry especially would be full of allusions and, you know, words that I don't know that I have to look up and allusions that I don't get, but it doesn't make the poems less beautiful. You know, some of my favorite poetry has images in it that I don't completely understand. And that's, that's fine. And I would always kind of rather tune writing towards like you know, you have to, you have to choose a direction to tune it in. And am I going to tune it in like the direction of like, oh, there's going to be some stuff that people are going to miss, but there's going to be some obscure things that they're going to get and be excited about. Or do I want to tune it on the low side so that there's nothing that anyone's going to miss, but maybe I'll miss the opportunity to like make some, like the opposite of low hanging fruit. If you know, if, if there's good, there's, I'm going to like leave out the high hanging fruit that people could potentially get. I would just rather tune it the other way and have things in there that people might miss. And I feel like that's a kind of confidence in the reader that as a reader myself, I like, I like when the writer has that confidence and I, I don't mind when I don't get everything. And yeah. And I have the opportunity to, to pursue it if I want to. And if I don't want to, I don't have to, because I'm, I'm the driving wheel as a reader. I want to ask you about structure too, because mm. you made a joke earlier about a spoiler alert that she reads <laughs> portrait of the, a portrait of a lady at the end, but that is kind of the climax of the novel. <laughs> and, you know, in some ways it's, it's like the school year is a very convenient narrative structure. You know, you, you see somebody go through and she even goes away in the summer, both novels, but at the same time, I'm sure somebody could accuse this being a novel where not that much happens. Like a lot of the development is intellectual development or Mm -hmm. like the development of relationships. And I wonder when you thought about structuring this novel, did you have like dramatic turning points or like intellectual Mm -hmm. turning points that you were hanging things on or was it more organic? Like how, how did it come about? Oh, absolutely. I I like that you said that her reading Portrait of a Lady is like a climax. And there's actually a part where she's reading the Henry James's preface to Portrait of a Lady. And he talks about how he's writing about this young woman character. He's like, how am I going to make the life of this like young woman who's like not objectively interesting? Like, how am I going to make her life interesting because of the young woman? She can't actually like do anything or have adventures. He's like, it was my goal to have this um, scene where she's sitting in a chair, realizing all of these different things about her own past. And that 
scene where nothing is happening in the room had to be as exciting as, you know, pirates hijacking a ship on an island, or I don't remember the particular example, but I love that. I mean, there's the question like, oh, does anything happen? And that I think is a very ideological question. It depends on, you know, you have, what do we consider something happening? Like at the beginning of the book, there's a, you know, Selin gets back to school for her second year and people keep asking her, so what happened over this? And did anything happen? meaning did she have sex with Yvonne? And she has to, even though she feels that lots of things happen, she has to tell them, no, nothing happened. And that is a hundred percent autobiographical. I really had that experience of this cognitive dissonance of being asked, did anything happen? And feeling that so many things happened and having in order to be truthful to say, no, nothing happened. And it's internalized misogyny. It's because we think that it's not a plot if the, if the girl doesn't fuck some guy, you know, or if there isn't some kind of potential of that. So that's one question. Then within, then there's a question of structure, which is sort of separate, but related. So when I first wrote in the first draft of either, or I really wrote it more to dramatize certain questions. And this is when I was still kind of thinking of it as it would be accompanied by an essay that the novel would be the first half and the essay would be the second half. And I was kind of queuing up. I was thinking of the different scenes as like, queuing up different points that I was going to make in the essay, like about how the disenfranchisement of children makes romance a vehicle for ideology. And and that's why we end up smoking cigarettes and drinking and becoming obsessed with sex when we're young adults, because those things are, are part of romance, which is an ideology that derives all of its strength from the fact that those things are not available to us as children and that we're in this kind of denial of the disenfranchisement of children. Anyway, so I was like writing things to set up these points that I was going to make later. So there wasn't a whole ton of narrative. It was just kind of like a list of of scenes. Then what I actually did at that point when I decided that I was going to do everything as a novel and I wasn't going to have any essays in this book, like I might do them later. But when I made that decision, I was like, okay, this novel, it can't just be like a, you know, a fake fragment of a novel. It has to actually be a real novel. It has to be real. And, you know, I think I I reached that decision even before I decided not to have the essays, because at some point the novel did start to feel sort of like, sort of fake, like, um, like I was writing it just to sort of debunk it. And that seemed like sort of a disrespectful attitude towards my younger self and towards like younger selves in general. Like I was like, no, if half of the book is a novel, it has to be real. I have to, it has to feel like I'm trying to make it good. It can't feel like I'm trying to set her up to like, show how wrong she is later. And at that point I started reading screenwriting manuals, actually. Um, Someone had recommended to me Save the Cat a long time ago and I'd never actually finished it. So I read Save the Cat. I read a bunch of stuff about three act structure and all this stuff. There's a lot more, I guess, because there's more, I don't know, there's more working screenwriters than to more professionalized. I don't know why, but there's a lot, there's a lot more material about how to structure or maybe because their screenwriting is more formulaic or is accepted as more formulaic, but there, there are all of these books and all this material available about how to, to create narrative structure. Most of it is based on Joseph Campbell's, the hero's journey. And then there are some sort of feminist attempts to revise it, but I didn't exactly stick to the three act structure in the book, but it was very interesting to read about the different parameters because it's a kind of like, it's a kind of cognitive hacking. Like 
here's what's going to make a story stick. You're going to open it with this image that's going to do this. And then there's going to be some kind of theme that's going to be stated at some, you know, like 4% in that is, it's going to work if it's 4% better than if it's 5% or 3%. And they're, they're very granular. And then there's going to be something that seems like it's a, it's going to be a false victory, which it seems like it's good, but it's actually bad. And then there's going to be a false defeat, which seems like it's bad, but it's actually good. And then there's going to be like a, turning point and a dark night of the soul. And it's kind of interesting to me, not necessarily to like craft those things for my book, but to look at all the scenes that I had and think of like, well, within what I have here, like what's the long dark night of the soul? What's the thing that seems like a victory, but is actually a defeat? What's the thing that seems like a defeat, but is actually a victory. And once I had that, I used Scrivener to to write the novel, which lets you which is really powerful for letting you structure a long document with different sections. So I could move the scenes around and try them out in different order. And it was, it was really exciting to be able to play with that. So my, my goal in the end is that it does feel like it has a narrative structure and it does build. And it's just that the plot is more in interior terms than in exterior terms. Yeah. I felt that it's pacey. Um, (laughs) And it felt like an argument for, something, you know, what Henry James was talking about, you know, making, sitting on a bus, reading a book exciting. So I think, I think you got there and it's fascinating to know that you're reading screenplays. I think Atessa Mushveg has talked about doing that as well, of reading kind of books about how to construct stories and that being a way to rethink novels. It totally makes sense. Cause it's, I mean, it's just a kind of like, it really feels like brain hacking, like different tricks that can make a narrative stick. And I think the screenwriters have put a huge amount of formal thought into this. I, I guess also because screenwriting, like we think of it more as a craft and novels are supposed to be like an art where you're just like expressing, but like, again, it's like, what are, what are the tools that we have that we know about how the mind works that are going to let us communicate the most effective way possible? I think it makes all the sense in the world to use all the tools that we have access to. Yeah. And there's a kind of elitism saying like, oh no, you can't possibly follow a formula because Mm -hmm. then it isn't as as evolved art. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course that's not true. So I want to talk about 1996 um, because, because, you know, this obviously it's a, it's a period novel. It's set in 96, but I could see a novel in which 1996 itself wasn't as such a present thing in the novel, but I felt so aware that it was happening in the 90s and that you and the book really wanted to be accurate and true to that time and think through what was actually happening in the 90s. And even you have some notes in the back about the text you consulted that Celine mm-hmm. would have actually been reading. So I wonder what was important for you capturing that, like the fidelity of the year and also what what interests you about 96? I mean, you were talking a little bit about that moment in time, it's a moment in time we've been returning to a lot, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. kind of rethinking the way women were treated in society and thought about, but is there anything else that is just like Mm -hmm. there for you in terms of story and ideas? Yes. To me, the salient part of the nineties is the extent to which we thought it was the end of history. And that once after 91 and after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union that, you know, democracy had won and sexism was over and racism was over. And we just had to like sit back and wait for all of the chips to kind of fall. And then everything was going to be great. I wrote the whole thing in my forties. Maybe I started it when I was like 39, but it's a, it's a book from my forties. 
And one of the great gifts about getting to make it to your 40s is that you actually have seen the expiration of a period of time. You know, like when I was in my 20s and even, you know, it was starting to change in my 30s, but definitely when I was in my 20s and when I was in college, I just thought of what I was living through as being like reality. I didn't, and I, you know, I would study history and I thought history was in the past and in the past people believed certain things and like now is just the present. And I didn't think about how historical forces were conditioning the present. And it's a real gift to get to, you know, to get to live another 20 years and to see how kind of what got outmoded, what turned out to be just completely not true, you know, what were the different narratives that we believed about, for example, race and gender violence in, in the U.S. that were not true? What was the way that we, there are ways that we talked about, like, just the, the, the Civil War and the genocide of the Native people, or, you know, we, we just did not talk about the genocide of the Native people, like Thanksgiving, the, the way that Thanksgiving was taught in schools that, that now seem insane. And, you know, Movies, if you watch movies from the 90s, like they just seem completely bonkers. This, like the way that we thought that it was okay to portray women and the way that we thought it was okay to portray even feminists. And this is, I think it's like actually an inherent, not to go too deep in the weeds. I, you know, I did do, I did do a doctorate and I studied the theory of the novel at some length. But so Lukacs, one of the really famous theorists of the novel, his theory is that before there were novels, there were epics. And in epics, time is just kind of this like eternal, unchanging thing. And Homer could write about things that had happened hundreds of years before his lifetime. And it just seemed like it was all in this eternal present. And the novel is marked by periods of time that feel like they've expired. And the first novel for Lukács is Don Quixote, where Don Quixote wants to be living. He's living in this like early industrial moment in Spain at the kind of like the beginning of the decline of the Armada and the empire. And he's thinking back about the days of knight errantry. And he decides to become a knight from this earlier period. And it's ridiculous. And that the comedy in the novel comes from that, from him, like going out and being like, I'm going to find a giant, but instead it's a windmill. Like that's the joke. And that from then on novels are about this kind of like expiration of what seemed like universal norms. So I guess I would say that it's not that I have this like objective belief that 1996 is the most interesting time ever, but it's like, that happens to be the time that I was young that seemed that it was sort of eternal and universal in the way that, partly in the way that I think the world always seems to young people, partly in a way that was special to the 90s. I think that the 90s had some, I don't know, just that there was a very popular book out called The End of History. I think there was like a, a, a feeling that we were, we had sort of come to the end of some process and, and reached something. And, um, and now we see how wrong it is. Yeah, I, I agree. And I wonder if, I mean, for me and probably for you, it's like a time during our youth when we don't fully know everything is always fascinating because mm -hmm. we understand our perspective now is very different from our perspective then even more so than if somebody was an, an adult at both times, you know, it's like, Totally. It's a time when our consciousness is is formed um, yeah. and that has left this intense imprint upon us. Yeah. And it's about getting to be in that, you know, you, you feel things more intensely at that age. Everything that you read seems like it might change your life. Every song that you listen to, not every song, but like here's the, many songs that you listen to feel like the most, I don't know, inspirational and like somehow deeply relevant communications from the world of art. And uh, you gain a lot of things with age, but I think you do lose that, that intensity. And it's, 
sort of exciting to get to go back and re-inhabit that. And to actually, you know, like, I'm also questioning, like, why, why do we lose that? Do we have to lose that? Is that, it's, it's also part of the story is that, oh, we get older and we don't feel things so intensely. Like, is that intensity of feeling actually still available? And we're just telling ourselves that it's not. So it was, it was fun to be back in that intensity of feeling. One more question for you. Are we going to get to experience Selene's third year? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I didn't even plan to do her second year. I, I was thinking of writing another Selene novel about Selene in her 30s. It was really just the process of promoting the idiot that made me realize, no, I have to go back to that particular time. I think if I, you know, if I, if I really did her third year and fourth year, I would die of old age and you know, <laughs> I would be like in my eighties and Selene would be like, I went to the Ikea and bought my first. So what is Ikea? <laughs> so I, I do hope to return to Selene in future books because I find that mode of asking questions really exciting, but probably at a later point. I will be there buying the book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ella Bachman, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. It's been a delight to have you. It's been so fun. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Picador. A lot of contemporary fiction is continuing to explore the role social media plays in our daily lives. From the way we communicate and process information to our political commitments, relationships, and perceptions of ourselves, ultimately shaping our worldview. But what about the people who work at these big tech companies? How exactly do they decide what things we see in our timelines? And what about the things that we don't see? If you're prepared to find out, then Picador has just published a brilliant new novel by Hannah Burfoots called We Had to Remove This Post that will make you rethink your online scrolling habits. In We Had to Remove This Post, we meet Kaylee who, deep in credit card debt, takes a job as a content moderator at a social media platform whose name she isn't allowed to mention. All day, Kaylee and her colleagues watch thousands of disturbing pictures and videos, and their job is to take down those that break the platform's ever-changing guidelines. Seeing the very worst of humanity is grueling, but Kaylee and her co-workers become close friends, and she even finds a new girlfriend. But soon, the work takes its toll, pushing the moderators to their mental edges, forcing them and the reader to question what is real, what is right, and who gets to decide. The Sunday Times has called it a chilling page-turner, richly suspenseful, with a strong literary heartbeat, and the Irish Times, taut as a thriller, sharp as a slug of ice-cold vodka. Hannah Burfitts has been praised by Kristen Arnett, Ling Ma, and Ian McEwen, who called the novel superbly poised, psychologically astute, and subtle. A chilling and urgent story exploring the toxic underside of social media, We Had to Remove This Post is the first novel to appear in English from Hannah Burfitts, translated from the Dutch by Emma Ralt. Out now and available from your local independent bookshop. All right, we are back here to give our book recommendations. Elif, could we have yours, please? So a novel that I read recently that I loved is The Eighth Life by Nina Haratashvili. 
It's a multi-generation novel set in a Georgian family over the course of the 20th century. And it's just wonderful on the interaction between life in Georgia and the Sovietization of Georgia and the relationship between Georgian and Russian culture, which is a subject that I'm really interested in. It's really a story about intergenerational trauma and about how to transcend that. And yeah, I recommend that very highly. Oh, great. I've heard the most amazing things. It's incredibly long, but um, it's incredibly yeah. long. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading it on an ebook, so I can't tell how long it is, but it's like, it's, it's, I think, it, yeah, it's a brick, but, but in the best possible way, I think when you really yeah. get into those novels, you don't want them to end. I got to the end and I went back to the beginning because I remembered having missed stuff at the beginning that I now knew at the end, which I did with a little life. Also, I remember getting to the end and going back to the beginning. So my recommendation this month is the novel Fever Dream by the Argentinian novelist Samantha Schweblin. I read an excellent translation on holiday from Spanish by Megan McDowell. And I actually first heard about this book um, when Jenny Offal recommended it on the show in 2020. I was in the shop the other day and I saw a copy and I picked it up and took it on holiday. And I honestly think it was the best thing to read on holiday because I read it in less than a day. It's very short on the beach. And it was a totally engulfing experience. It's short, as I said, it's eerie, it's original and completely effective. So what what's happening in the novel is it's told as a dialogue between this woman named Amanda, who we know from the very first page is deathly ill in a clinic somewhere. And a young boy, David, who sits on the foot of her bed talking to her. And it isn't clear whether she's hallucinating David or not, but she knows him. She's just met him. And he is asking her to recount the events of the last few days, especially in relation to David's mother, who she met while she was on holiday with her young daughter, so that she might understand what is happening to her in the clinic. And I don't want to give too much away because there is a kind of thriller aspect. You, as much as Amanda, want to find out what happened. But in the end, it's it's a story about environmental destruction in a really subtle and interesting way. You know, willful blindness, family, love for children. It has some very disturbing images. <laughs> it's, it's haunting and frenzied. And I'd really recommend it. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Elif Bottomen, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. I will be back soon, hopefully with Octavia. I've really missed her for another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.